0: Well, I'm TC. I'm the pastor of Roots, and I want to welcome you once again to our worship gathering. Uh, I'm a bit excited this morning because we are starting a new teaching series. It always gets me excited. And this teaching series we're calling Adore. And it's a series that we're going to use to home in on the second major emphasis of our mission vision statement to passionately love God. And so this. Series is going to talk about a subject that might feel a little bit churchy at first. Uh, it it might have a little bit of baggage. Some of us might have with it. I'm um, talking about the subject of worship. But I'm hoping that in this series that we can reclaim this topic and perhaps even find some balance, perhaps even some healing around the subject of worship, because the subject of worship um, could lead us in ten thousand different directions. Because I think. A lot of us, most of us, have different understandings of worship and obviously different experiences of worship. And so, since we can't explore all 10,000 different directions, in this series we want to focus our efforts on what does worship mean to the church? What does worship mean in the context of our mission as Roots Covenant Church? What does it look like in the context of the corporate gathering of Jesus' disciples? And so you're going to see why I think that's important later in this message and as we go forward in the series. But I want to bring up uh, next week, we have a, uh, a, a special treat. We ha- uh, we're going to have der Lore, our own der, uh to preach on the presence of God, which is a subject that I'm really excited about. I'm sad that I won't be here. I'm really hoping that you know, he'll record it so I can listen to it uh, while I'm away. I'm going to give him my recorder. Um, because I'm excited about what we talked about this week, um, just as we kind of brainstormed and thought about it. I'm going to be away at a conference called Midwinter. It's the kind of annual pastors gathering of the ECC. It's like summer camp for pastors. And it's where I'm going to have my final interview for ordination. So yay me. Exciting. And then, you don't have to clap for that. It's really not that serious. So... Uh, And then later in the series, we're going to have... Oshida's going to speak, and she's reflecting right now, praying, um, and reading up on a few subjects. But for sure, one of the subjects that we want to have her speak on is table fellowship and worship. What does it mean? Uh, What is food in the context of worship? And so that's going to be an exciting one. You're you're not going to want to miss any of these. I think these are all going to be really good. But this morning, my goal is uh, pretty broad. I want to just lay a foundation kind of like a first layer of when we talk about this subject of worship, what are we talking about? And um, I want to share a bit of my own experiences around the subject of worship and my reflections on the subject of worship over the years. And my hopes is that maybe some of the mistakes I've made, we can learn from as a community, you can learn from, and uh, maybe they can be instructive for us as a church. And so the way that God has lovingly guided me through this uh, process over the years, and and hopefully we can dig a little deeper today into two of the main directions I think we need to go when we talk about worship. The first direction is response, and I have to give Durr credit for uh, this word kind of as a, as a category. In thinking about how we typically think of worship, we typically gravitate towards this direction, that worship is our expression to God. That is how we come to God. It's what we do uh, for God. That's the response. Uh, but I also want to focus on another direction this morning, a direction that we don't often, as often, intuit when we think of worship, and that is formation. So formation is God's response to us in worship. It's the effect of our partnership with the Spirit as we give God glory, and uh, and God is worthy of glory. In the process of that response from us, God is doing something in us that improves our response to God and improves our witness. So ultimately, I think that I want this series to to really be uh, an exploration of worship. I want it to, to spark our imaginations, our creativity, get us thinking about different ways that we can worship, different responses to God and different ways that God is responding to us. I want this series to challenge some of our assumptions about worship, and I want it to ultimately energize our faith to be part of uh, the way God is moving in our lives. Because I believe that worship is the engine of the church. Worship is really what drives the church. We can look very shiny on the outside, and we can even be very comfortable on the inside, but without the engine of worship, I don't think we're going anywhere. I just think we're just, you know, sitting here. And so, we need, as a, as a church, as a community, to view worship as this, this dynamic between us and God that is continually moving us forward, this kind of perpetual motion. God is, God is in our midst, we are responding to God, and God is trans- transforming us. I also think that worship is what powers justice and mission for the church, we could do justice without worship, but I think it's just do-gooding. I think it's just uh, kind of like guilt-based. Or maybe even just like uh, self-righteous. But I think worship, uh, justice that's driven by worship is perpetual. It, it renews itself. So that's why I think this is a good lead-in to our next series, Love in Public, which is about justice and mission. First, we're going to start with the series on worship. And that's going to fuel our understanding of how the church does justice and mission. So we're going to look at a passage this morning from the letter of Romans, Paul's letter to the church in Rome. But before we dive into that passage, would you join me in a prayer for the illumination of the Spirit? Spirit of God, we, we need you this morning. We need you to open the eyes of our hearts and our minds we need you to speak to us in a, in a peculiar, special way this morning. We need you to open up our understanding about this subject that we may feel like is very familiar to a lot of us. Help us to see from another perspective this morning. Help us to see from your perspective. Spirit, I pray you would be our teacher this morning, and I pray that you would illuminate the scriptures to our understanding. And I pray that you be at work in our hearts and our minds Uh, transforming us, moving us forward into the future that you have for us, as a church, individually, and for this city. I pray all this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Alright, so we're going to look at uh, Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. You can follow along in your own translation of the Bible if you have one. Uh, digital or analog, or you can follow along on the screen behind me. I'm going to be reading from the NRSV this morning, starting in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This passage is a turning point in the letter to the, to the Romans. It's widely, Romans is widely considered one of uh, Paul's most comprehensive theological letters. It's tied for the longest letter with 1 Corinthians, it's 16 chapters. And the first 11 chapters of Romans is this dense theological exploration of the gospel of Jesus. And its relationship to Israel, relationship to the Torah, in relationship to this new challenge of what do we do with these Gentiles coming into the church. So for 11 chapters, Paul is building this case, building this argument, this beautiful theological thing. And then right here at chapter 12, he makes a turn. And that turn changes the mode of the letter, the tone of the letter. Suddenly, Paul's going to get really practical. He's going to start dealing with some things in everyday life of the church. For example, he starts dealing with the relationship between the church and the empire of Rome. That's chapter 13. He starts dealing with the relationship between uh, different cultures in the church. What foods are acceptable to eat in the church? Uh, What if if people disagree on what foods you can eat, right? He starts getting really nitty-gritty. He even, at one point, just says, here's a bunch of people that I want to greet. Say hi to so-and-so. So he gets real practical after this point. So this verse, these two verses, are the hinge on which this whole thing turns. And I think that's interesting that the subject matter of this hinge is worship. Worship is that turning point between The theological and the practical. It's where heaven meets earth, so to speak. It's where we are caught up in God's presence and where God meets with us in everyday real ways. Um, But I'm not just talking about worship in general, and neither is Paul. I'm talking about the Sunday gathering of Jesus' disciples, both Jews and Gentiles, for corporate worship. Now how do I know that's what Paul's talking about? Because... For the rest of chapter uh, 12, at least down into like verse 8, Paul's going to go into this discourse about the body of Christ and how we're all a diverse community made up of differently gifted people. So first three says, for the grace given to me, by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you to not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment Each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members. And not all the members have the same function. As we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members one of another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministering, the teacher in teaching, the exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. So today, it's very easy for us to get swept up into the movement of thinking about worship more broadly, more generally. I think that's, that's really what people are talking about a lot. A lot of people are saying now, we don't need church to worship God. And that's true to an extent, but it's also highly problematic. And here's why. Earlier this week I was, I was uh, you know, studying up on worship and I, I picked up a book that is one of Oshida's favorites. It's called An Altar in the World by uh, Barbara Brown Taylor. And she's uh, also written a book called Leaving Church. She's a former Episcopalian priest. And in it she writes this. People encounter God under shady oak trees, on riverbanks, at the top of mountains, and in long stretches of barren wilderness." God shows up in whirlwinds, starry skies, burning bushes, and perfect strangers. When people want to know more about God, the Son of God tells them to pay attention to the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, to women needing bread and workers lining up for their pay. Whoever wrote this stuff believes that people could learn as much about the ways of God from paying attention to the world as they could from paying attention to the scriptures. What is true is what happens. Even if what happens is not always right. People can learn as much about the ways of God from business deals gone bad, or sparrows falling to the ground, as they can from reciting the books of the Bible in order. They can learn as much about they can learn as much from a love affair or a wildflower as they can from knowing the Ten Commandments by heart. She goes on to say, Who has persuaded me who had persuaded me that God preferred four walls and a roof? to wide open spaces? When had I made a subtle switch myself, becoming convinced that church bodies and buildings were the safest and most reliable places to encounter the living God? Now, this might be, I'm conceding here, this might be an important encouragement for some people. Maybe folks who are saturated in a stifling church culture that views worship exclusively as the corporate gathering of the body of Christ. But that's not really the spirit of the age today. That's not really what I hear pretty much continuously. Today, we don't have large swaths of people who think that the only way to connect to God is on Sundays at your local church. Instead, today, I think we have a lot of people who say, I'm spiritual, I'm just not religious. We have a lot of people who say, I'm I'm tolerant of whatever you want to believe. Whatever you want to believe is good. And Barbara Brown Taylor is preaching to the choir by not preaching to the choir. This is the type of spirituality that I think American consumerism produces. It's uh, it's you know mall spirituality, right? It's like uh, you shop at your favorite department store and I shop at a high-end boutique, but you know you get your fashion fix one way, I get my fashion fix another, right? And we can all meet up in the food court and I can eat sushi and you can have a cheeseburger and I'm good with that. You you eat what you like, I eat what I like. That's consumer spirituality. But this is not at all what the Apostle Paul is talking about. The Apostle Paul, when he thinks of uh, the marketplaces of spirituality, he thinks of the Roman pantheon. Rome had no problem with you adding gods to the pantheon. They were fine with that. You want to worship your local tribal deities in addition to Caesar and the Roman pantheon? Sure, go ahead. That's fine. He's well aware that Rome was more than happy to add gods to the pantheon. But that's not what Paul teaches that Christ and the church mean when they talk about worship. Let me give you an example. In Acts 17, Paul encounters this consumer spirituality in Athens. And in Athens, he discovers that they're very spiritual. They've got lots of idols. This is what he says. For as I walked around, I looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription. To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. For from one man he made all the nations, that they should inherit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live, move, and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think of the divine being as something like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, check this out. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So Paul tells the Athenians, you've been walking around in fields and having your love affairs and connecting with some general God of your own making... But the clocks run out on that kind of worship done in ignorance. The creator God, the one true God, has broken into history through the incarnation, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. True worship of God now has a very specific aim, a very specific goal or trajectory. In Greek, it's the word telos. And that telos Is Jesus now. This is what Paul has been painstakingly laying out in the first 12, the first 11 chapters of Romans. He's been laying out this argument, this beautiful treatise on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in light of that gospel, the royal proclamation that in and through Jesus the Messiah, a new age has dawned. The age to come. Has crashed into the present, and we have a new king and a new kingdom. And this new king has conquered the powers of sin and death. Now, here is how we are called to respond to that gospel present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. By the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So some of you have heard me mention this before, I came to faith at 16, out of uh, gang life, out of drugs, out of promiscuity, out of violence, and I mentioned to you that I came to faith through a Pentecostal church. And part of this passage that really resonated with me so deeply when I was 16 was the countercultural nature of it? Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. You didn't have to convince me that Christian worship was countercultural when I was 16, because I was experiencing it in real time. It was radically different than my old life. And every day I was experiencing the renewing of my mind. Old former patterns of thought were being uh, rooted out. And new patterns of thought were, being, were replacing them every day. So I, I'm really grateful for that time uh, in my life. And as many of you know, um, a, couple, a few of my former pastors from that time are still a, a, a valuable part of my life. They visited here at Roots. But I've also developed some wrong ways of thinking about worship during that time. Some problematic ways of thinking about worship. For example... For a long time, I too closely associated worship with music and singing. Almost exclusively. uh, To the point where I would say, man, worship was amazing this week. And what I meant was, I really liked the songs that we sang. That's what I meant. It wasn't until I began to learn more about church history and about the beautiful diversity of Christian traditions all throughout the world and all throughout church history that I began to realize how narrow my view really was and how new it was, really, in church history. It's a very minority view and a very new view. Today, I've been a follower of Jesus for 20 years. I've been a pastor for over a decade, and my thinking has has radically shifted from where I was when I was, I was 16, obviously. And to be a little bit vulnerable with you, now it's a bit of a pet peeve of mine when I hear people use worship that way. When people say, you know, I really liked worship and what they meant was, I like the songs we sang. That kind of grates on me a little bit. I'm just being, I'm just being honest. Um, the reason why that grates on me is because everything we do, everything we do together as the body of Christ, when we come together to ascribe worth to God, all of it is worship. Every scripture reading, every responsive litany, every baptism, every sermon, every every time we participate in the Lord's supper. Everything we do together, all of this is worship. Even the announcements. Maybe not. Maybe not the announcements. I don't know. But at that early stage in my discipleship, I was very critical of what I consider traditional worship practices. I, 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 I called them empty rituals. I was very harsh. And uh, the only things that mattered to me back then were the preaching and the music. That's it. We sing, we preach, and we go home. Uh, I was baptized, but I didn't think of baptism as worship. And I, and I took communion, but I didn't think of communion as worship. Um, all of that started to change for me when Oshita and I began to attend a more traditional church uh, in New Orleans. This is, you know, 15 years ago. And it was a church that had what they called a blended service. Blended meant some traditional practices, some more contemporary practices, right? And I gotta be honest, I was really apprehensive. I felt like this was gonna be boring and stale and I felt like it was gonna be like just empty ritual. Lots of, you know, stand up, sit down, say these words, right? I was amazed at how much I sensed God's power in that service, in that church, in that community, through the worship practices. In fact, I had this profound experience once um, that, that really changed me. Our pastor called for everyone to stand and to confess the Apostles' Creed together out loud. The Apostles' Creed is a very ancient confession of faith that summarizes the New Testament's teachings. Uh, it's confessed in the early church as a baptismal, baptismal vow. Before you got baptized, you would say the Apostles' Creed. And to this day, the Apostles' Creed is the most widely affirmed statement of faith among all Christians, Roman Catholics, Orthodox Protestants of all types affirm the Apostles' Creed. And so as we confess this creed out loud together, I suddenly had a profound realization that changed me. I realized that every Sunday, millions of Jesus' disciples all over the world and down through the centuries of church history had confessed this creed together out loud. And I realized how powerful this confession must have been at times when the church wasn't as insulated and protected from violence as we are often here in the United States. Imagine this creed being confessed by Christians who were facing fascist regimes that wanted to squash the Christian church in that country. Imagine this this confession being confessed by um, believers being persecuted for their faith. Imagine this confession being confessed by Believers where laws and social forces were trying to divide the church along racial lines. Uh, Suddenly I felt connected to the global and universal body of Christ. It was a profound experience for me. And that's why I'd like to take a moment, middle of this message, and I want to invite you to stand and together confess this creed with me. Um, I'm going to have the words on the screen. And if you feel comfortable doing so, you can say them along. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. And is seated at the right hand of the Father. And will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So, as I was part of that church and as I began to participate in traditional worship practices, I... I learned what Paul was talking about when he said, present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Because I began to view my participation in worship less about me and more about God. Less about my preferences, my individualistic need to express myself, and more about what was God doing in me through these practices. And it shifted my thinking. Earlier, I was a bit hard on Barbara Brown Taylor. Um, She's not all wrong. There's one thing she teaches that I think is very true and important. She teaches that worship, that we worship and are formed through bodily practices, embodied practices. And this is another really important aspect of what Paul is teaching here in the book of Romans. Paul knows something that we modern Westerners easily forget that we are flesh, that we are embodied. We're not brains in a vat, just floating around. We're conditioned in the modern West to believe that transformation begins in our brains and ends in our bodies. But Paul says we have it backwards. He says, present your bodies to have your minds renewed. I really think this is one of the most significant developments in my understanding of worship. I had a mentor once who said to me, he noticed my ministry, he noticed something about it, that it was very cerebral, and he said, he said, TC, you think that people think their way into a new way of acting. He said, but I think that people act their way into a new way of thinking. And that really challenged me. I mean, I remember feeling like, no, 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 and I, the more I thought about it, I was like, is he right? Could he be right? I think that we've become convinced that human beings are thinking things. We're primarily thinking creatures. But i become more convinced that we are creatures who are moved by our deepest loves. That we're desiring creatures. And that's what we are most fundamentally. And those loves are formed by embodied practices in which we participate. I want you to think about something. Corporations want to make money, right? They want to to meet that bottom line and satisfy shareholders. So what do they do? Do they come up with a list of arguments for why their product is better than their competitors? Do they come with stats and statistics? Or do they more often try to capture our hearts with an ad campaign that's beautiful, that invokes our imaginations, that 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 hits us with boldness? Do they more often try to create a beautiful, elegant space in which we inhabit so that we fall in love with their products? When I was in seminary, I used to work at the Apple Store. Anybody ever been to the Apple Store? The Apple Store is not a list of facts and figures about why Apple's products are better than their competitors. The Apple Store is an experience. It's, It's like a cathedral of consumerism. You walk in and you're like, "Ah, this is nice. I like these products, yes. Corporations know something that we don't know. Uh, They know that the whole experience, the whole physical embodied experience is aimed at our hearts, not our heads. We used to love it when people would unbox the iPhone and they'd say, ooh, I love how this box feels. Even the, even the box was intentional. Everything is intentional. Because corporations understand that to change someone's beliefs, you change their embodied practices. That's what you do. If you want someone to buy something, you capture their hearts, not their heads. One of the best people that I've heard articulate this idea is a guy named James K.A. Smith who wrote a book called Desiring the Kingdom which was mostly aimed at Christian education, but he wrote a follow-up book called You Are What You Love, which is aimed at more at the church, and it's about worship. Here's what he says about worship. Worship works from the top down, you might say. In worship, we don't just come to show God our devotion and give him our praise. We are called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes us and molds us top down. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. See, every day, I believe, in a thousand subtle and often imperceptible ways, our loves are being formed by the practices in which we participate. Oftentimes, unconsciously, we just go through our days, we go through the motions, and we don't know that what we're doing is causing us to love something, to work towards something, to move in a certain direction. Before we're even fully aware of it, we've been formed into good little consumers who'll slap down our cash when we see that free shipping sign, or that 50 off, 50% off sign. Before we're even fully aware of it, we've been formed into good little individualists, who think primarily about ourselves versus the whole, about my needs, my wants, how I'm unique. Before we're even fully aware of it, we've been formed into good little racists, taught to think that light skin is more desirable than dark skin, that brown people are foreign, their lives matter less, and they're dangerous. In a thousand little imperceptible ways, we are being formed and taught by the embodied practices in which we participate. But these lies, you have to keep in mind, these lies aren't pitched to us on a PowerPoint presentation. They aren't aimed at our heads. No, We develop these ways of thinking through years and years of habits. Sometimes through the art that has captured our imaginations. James K.A. Smith calls these liturgies. Here's what he says. Liturgies, whether sacred or secular, shape and constitute our identities by forming our most fundamental desires ...and our most basic attunement to the world. In short, liturgies make us certain kinds of people. And what defines us is what we love. This word liturgy is just a fancy way of saying a worship practice. It could take on many different forms. It could be an action that we we do. It could be a recitation. It could be a song. It could be a posture. It could be anything. Like Smith says, there are even secular liturgies. Practices that aren't expressly religious, but have the same effect. These are embodied practices that that we go through the motions of, oftentimes without even realizing we're doing it. And if those practices are forming our loves towards something that isn't God, that's idolatry. That's idolatry. One of my favorite descriptions of uh, of worship and idolatry comes from an agnostic author named David Foster Wallace. David Foster Wallace gave a commencement address one time to undergraduates, and this is what he said. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. An outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if that is where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. That's a a powerful description of idolatry. We give ourselves, our loves, our hearts to things that are not God. And with that power... Those idols crush us. Wallace didn't think that there was really any difference between worshiping J.C. or the Wiccan Mother Goddess, but he acknowledges that what we worship forms us, or malforms us, into the kinds of people that we are becoming. What Paul is teaching the church at Rome is that the only way to be free, truly free from all the powers that want to crush us is to be formed into the image of Jesus. Only being formed into the image of the crucified Messiah, the one who loved to the point of laying down his life even for his murderers, only that frees us from the powers of fear, of sin, and ultimately of death itself. Only being formed into the image of the one who touched lepers, who included outcasts, who welcomed strangers, who called the self-righteous to account. Only worshiping Jesus makes us whole. As we worship Jesus, we're becoming more and more like Jesus, and we're becoming more and more ourselves. I want to close this message that I've been talking a lot about embodied practices. I want to close this message with the most central embodied practice of the Christian faith. For 2,000 years, disciples of Jesus have gathered in caves and cathedrals, homes and parks, gymnasiums and remodeled canning factories, and have broken the bread that Jesus said was his body, and have shared the cup that Jesus said was his blood. And this embodied practice is how we are formed how our hearts are transformed and our minds are renewed and our loves are captured. We learn that it's not only Jesus it's not only that Jesus died for us, which is powerful, but it's also that we are being formed into one body, because of Jesus' death. When we come to this table, we are responding to the gospel and we are being formed by the gospel.